Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place where you can get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine, where we are helping you stay smart. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so you're not getting the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, all good articles. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And recall that we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, get in touch. We'll help you out. Now, this is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by our authors, Millie Kosse, Jason Lesnick, Julie Brown, Caitlin Nicholson, Amanda Matthews, and Clay Smith. Let's skip right over to the second article. Titled Performance of the Zero to Two Hour High Sensitivity Troponin Accelerated Diagnostic Protocol in a Multi-Site United States Cohort, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. You've heard, no doubt, that some countries do troponin testing a little bit faster than North America. Europe and Australia and some places use shorter durations between their troponin testings. Typically, here in North America, we use zero and three hour troponin levels. But zero and two hours and zero in one hour even, well, these things have been well validated in multiple countries. Let's have a look at a U.S. population study. This was a pre-planned subgroup analysis of a multi-center study, the STOP-CP trial that enrolled 1,300 adult patients presenting to the emergency department with possible ACS at eight academic emergency departments in the United States. Their primary outcome was 30-day cardiac death, or MI. They wanted to know if their zero- and two-hour algorithm would be a safe rule-out tool. From the results, the test characteristics were not perfect, honestly performing a little bit worse than we've seen in other studies. The negative predictive value was 98%, with, compared with nearly 100% seen elsewhere, and the positive predictive value was only 62%. If the troponins were combined with the HERE score, honestly though, come on guys, once you've done that, you add troponins to the HERE score, HERE plus troponins, T, you're just, it's just a heart score. That's pretty well all it is. Anyways, with the HERE score, there was a negative predictive value of 99.3%, but the specificity was not great. Anyways, with the HERE score, the negative predictive value improved to 99.3%, but the specificity wasn't so great, with only 15% of patients ruled in. I think this is a good time for my rant. Now, I do not understand trials that look at troponins like this to see what your 30-day cardiac mortality or cardiac event outcomes are going to be. It does not make sense to me. That's like using an x-ray to rule out your annual risk of fracture. It doesn't really make sense. I agree, it would be really nice if it worked that way, if we could have some measure in the future of what's going to happen to you based on your troponins, but based on what I know about the pathophysiology of troponins, it just makes no sense. Now, if you're a troponin physiology guru and you think I'm missing something, please email the journal feed or let me know. Troponins should be used to rule in or rule out your risk of having active or very recent cardiac ischemia. Nothing about presently not having troponins in your blood really speaks to the stability of your plaques and whether or not you're going to have one of those rupture in the near future. We're wasting the time of very intelligent researchers looking at problems like this. The fact that it was correlated well in other studies is quite frankly almost irrelevant the lack of plausible physiological explanation, of course, doesn't completely rule out causality, but it sure makes me raise my eyebrow. 
So why didn't a useless test perform as well as we'd like? Well, because this baseline population was sicker than the one it's usually tested on. They had more hypertension, diabetes, known CAD, prior MIs, and peripheral vascular disease. And then what improved the test? Well, taking into account risk factors that influence your risk of future events, say over the next 30 days. So risk factors that give you some measure of the amount of plaque and calcium that this patient is actually going to have in their arteries. So while this study looks kind of negative, it personally doesn't influence my opinion at all about adopting a faster troponin protocol, not when the outcomes don't really make that much sense. I want to know if we missed any MIs from day one when we did those troponins. That's the outcome that I want to know. In a spoonful, troponins taken at times at zero in two hours, faster than we usually do it in North America, it's not a crystal ball. And next time, you know, just call the study what it is, a heart score validation. And then we skip to the fourth article, titled Phenobarbital Treatment of Alcohol Withdrawal in the Emergency Department, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the journal Academic Emergency Medicine. Now, this has been an interesting question, or at least one that I've been interested in for a while. Emergency department treatment of ETOH withdrawal with benzos or with phenobarbital. Let's talk about the study first, then my thoughts. Now, I'm glad this was an emergency department study. Most phenobarb evidence is, well, it's from the ICU. So they did a meta-analysis looking for the primary outcomes of patients admitted to the ICU from the emergency department. Six of the studies found reported hospital admission rates and five reported ICU admission rates. There was not a significant difference in ICU admission rates between the groups treated in the emergency department with benzos or with phenobarbital. Other outcomes that did not differ between the groups was regular hospital admissions and readmissions to the emergency department. There was a difference between the groups pharmacologically. It would seem that if you converted everything into equivalencies of lorazepam doses, that the phenobarbital group got an average of three times more lorazepam equivalents. But this isn't really a very important outcome to me if safety is the same, especially when phenobarbital is a very cheap drug. Speaking of safety, the rate of adverse events was also not significantly different between the groups. Authors caution the risk of confounding due to local practice patterns, which I think is a significant thing to keep in mind here. Hospitals tend to have particular cultures when it comes to things like this. So what I like to see from this trial was that phenobarbital isn't more dangerous and there aren't more readmissions. Given that phenobarbital and benzodiazepines have similar mechanisms, they're both GABA agonists, I don't expect one to necessarily be better than the other if they're dosed correctly. The difference I like is that phenobarbital dosing feels much more straightforward to me. You don't have to redose things that often either because the half-life is so long, so once you reach a proper state of symptom control, they're pretty much good. You can set it and almost forget it. Where I work, we just ask for a seawall protocol from the nurses and they handle everything, but these things are really time consuming for the nurses and I frequently get asked by them if we can give another extra halfway between dose of benzodiazepines because the patient feels uncomfortable even when their seawall is low. I don't know if using phenobarbital would get rid of that problem, but oh, might be worth a try. I like phenobarbital, and this study, while not favoring either choice, seems like good justification for using it if you want to. I've always been a fan of weight-based dosing after all. In a spoonful, relatively low-quality data, but still a meta-analysis showing essentially equivalency between phenobarbital and benzodiazepines for treatment of ETOH withdrawal in the emergency department. 
Okay, and that wraps things up. Let's do a quick review. From the second article, evidence that looks to not be in favor of the zero to two hour troponin protocols, but doesn't dampen my own enthusiasm. From the fourth article, no difference in outcomes between phenobarbital and benzos for treatment of emergency department ETOH withdrawal, which is kind of good news because I think that means that you can pick your favorite. Again, if you were hearing this, then you are not part of the member's feed, and so you missed three articles from this past week. One looked at hemoglobin targets in active myocardial infarction. Another was a review of catatonia, something you probably need a review of. And the last was more evidence for the risk of boarding in the emergency department. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you. Links to all the articles...